Okay, so First Peter uh, chapter 5, um, so from verse 6 to 11. Now, it has been said before, hasn't it, that listen, for the consistent atheist, the consistent atheist, there are no questions about suffering or pain. Hear it again, that for the consistent atheist, there are no questions about suffering. You get the idea, I'm sure, do you? That should a person deny the existence of God, the existence of meaning or purpose, and should that person be consistent in their, and their logic, then that same person really has no right or reason to question why when trouble, problems, disappointment, and suffering come into their life. For a consistent atheist, if an atheist has been consistent, there are no questions. They can have no questions about suffering or pain. Right? We've heard that before. Well, you do not this morning need me to tell you (laughs) that things are very, very different for the Christian. Isn't that right? As the people of God, we are following after Jesus, the one who is the man of sorrows. And as you and I do that often, we are left in the Christian life with questions about suffering, questions about disappointment. One Christian writer, he put this down on paper. He said this, that one of the greatest problems with suffering in the Christian life is that very often it is not explained. Suffering not explained. And he's absolutely bang on. Often in the face of troubles and adversity we have in our life, we are left asking, not just how do I respond to this? How do I honor God? But you and I are often left asking why God? Why? Well, I wonder if you're with me when I say this, that as you and I have studied First Peter, Over the last few months, during a pandemic, as we've done that, what we found is that this letter has suited us down to the ground at a time like this. Isn't that correct? I mean, you you think about it. Don't you just love the way that Peter has not sugar-coated the Christian experience? He has not in any way kind of pretended to us about what the Christian life... He's been, he's been, he's been upfront about the fact that we're going to suffer as Christians. And every time he has pointed us for our hope to Jesus Christ. Well, as we come to, you know, nearly the end of this epistle, we come as absolutely wonderful today. I want you to hear this carefully, clearly. Do you know what Peter does in this section of scripture? He explains the nature of at least some of the suffering that we face. He explains at least part of why we go through some of the things we go through. And then not only does Peter do that, that in itself is amazing. Peter explaining opposition and suffering. But in addition to that, uh, what Peter does is he shows you, me, how we are to respond to the disappointments in our life, difficulties in our life, the trials, the tribulation, the adversity. He shows us how to respond. I'll throw it out there, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. This is an incredibly helpful portion of God's word. So, you got your Bible? You do? Then understand that I think here Peter gives us three lessons. He teaches us three lessons 
uh, about facing suffering. So let's just launch into the first of these. Okay, please, if you're taking notes, make sure you get this one. So this is the first one. When we suffer, what do we do? How do we respond? The first thing is we take to God's throne. That's the first thing. We take uh, to God's throne. Okay, now... You know, as well as I do, I'm sure, especially if you're part of LCPC, you know that when we are working our way through a book of the Bible, right, in a systematic, sequential way, sometimes it's quite difficult to see how the portions, the successive sections of Scripture, how they link together. Isn't that right? You know, we're we're studying a portion of scripture and we look at it and the biblical author will go from one theme sometimes and then he go into another theme. And occasionally you and I are left scratching our heads. They're like, well, what's the link? Like, how do these things dovetail and sit together? Well, if you look down at your Bible, you look at the end of verse five into verse six, you will see that today we have absolutely no such problem at all with us. Do we? Do you see it? Look at the end of verse 5. He goes from speaking about the need for Christians to have humility with each other. And then where does he go? You can almost hear the cogs, Peter's mind (laughs) ticking over. He goes from the need for humility with each other into verse 6, the need for Christians to have humility before God. Do you see it? Like there's a link, there's a hinge. It's very fluid. You you see what's going on here. Humility before God. Here's the question though. What does that mean? The idea of Peter saying we've got to be humble before God. Humility before God. What what does that mean? Well get this. Verse 6 is actually one of those instances where familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures really, really pays off. Because if you look at verse 6, do you see that phrase there? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You see the phrase? That's almost a technical phrase in the Old Testament. So that is a phrase in the Old Testament that's very often used, both actually for God's ordaining of our adversity, but also it's used of God delivering us from those times of trouble. If you're not with me, you will be soon. I'll give you a couple examples. So we know the story of Job, do we? Job? Well, in Job chapter 30, this is what's happening. Job is facing all sorts of issues, all sorts of problems. But what does he see? What does he realize that these are by, he says, the mighty hand of God? And so what does Job do? He submits to these circumstances. He humbles himself to these circumstances. The same is true in Exodus. The same is true in Deuteronomy. The people's problems are by the mighty hand of God. So they humble themselves under these circumstances. Ah, if you see that, do you now see what Peter is doing by using this phrase? To the persecuted church in the first century, but also to you and me, he is informing our view of our suffering. Or actually, let me be more precise about it. Do you know what he's doing? He's calling for us to submit to our suffering. You see it, I'm sure. The Christians, that we are not to be a people who are always rallying against our adversity, always moaning and complaining and pushing back to these, these troubled times we might face. We are a people who are to be humble and submit ourselves to these circumstances We are to accept 
that these things are part of the greater plan of a God who loves us, and a God who cares for us. We humble ourselves in the mighty hand of God. I know what you're thinking. You think, that sounds good. That sounds fine. Humble ourselves to our circumstances, even if we're suffering. Sounds all right. But Andy, how do we do it? <laughs> like, come on, practically speaking, I want to live for Jesus Christ. How do we actually do this? How do we humble ourselves before God? Well, if you are asking that question, I'm sure a lot of people are just now. I've got good news for you. Because what comes next in the text is what we would call, uh, listen, an instrumental participle, where we all just throw up our hands and just go, ooh, sounds fancy, you know, instrumental participle. But it is good news. Because we're asking, you know, how do we humble ourselves? And God here shows you. Look at verse 7. Look at it. So we're saying, how do we humble ourselves? How do we manifest humility in our trials? And we are told by God, by casting all of our, what's the word? By casting all our anxieties on him. Now, um, are you with me on this when I say this? That sometimes the theme, you know, like sometimes when you hear a sermon, right? The theme of a sermon, it sometimes seems particularly relevant to a faction of the congregation. You know, if you're LCPC, I've spoken about this before, but I think it's true. We don't have to look very far to think of an example. What about last week? If you tuned in last week and you watched it, we talked about a sermon about elders. Do you see it? Like there's there's application. Yes, you could say for everybody, you know, how we pray for elders, what do we expect from elders? Fine. But it's a sermon where the theme of the sermon is particularly relevant for one group of guys, these sort of office bearers, right? So you're with me? You agree, don't you? Sometimes the theme is appropriate for a faction. What's the alternative to that? Sometimes the theme of the sermon is relevant to every single Christian who hears that sermon. And as Peter, by the Holy Spirit, now turns to the subject of anxiety and worry, do we not find one such example here? One Puritan author, he says this, and I want you to hear the quote very carefully. Listen, he says that all of us, even the best of Christians, even the best of us, are prone to the sin of excessive worry. Prone to the sin of excessive worry. And isn't he right when we think about it for a moment? Like it's probably true, isn't it, that over this pandemic, it's probably true that every single one of us at one point or other has been given to excessive worry about our health in this pandemic. That's surely true. But it's more than that. And it's the monster is bigger than that as well. Because what about us? Like think about it. We've been given to anxiety about our families recently. An anxiety about our future, some of us. Some of us have been given to anxiety about our finances. And there has been disappointment in the congregation. And there's been heartbreak. And there's been bad news that has almost kind of consumed us with this overarching concern. Well, given the kind of universal relevance of this theme, I wonder what you think is going to happen now. Like, what do you write? What do you think? We are going to do you and I. Do you think I'm going to like unpack this idea that Peter has here to unpick or unfold it? Do you? Yes. 
You need to consider the words of God here. He says to you, cast your anxiety on him. Do you not see that, Christian friend? You and I, following Jesus Christ, we are not to be a people who find ourselves four o'clock in the morning going over our worries in our head time and time again, building ourselves up into this ball of hysteria. Like the meaning of this verb here is the idea of you taking that thing that you're worried about, taking it to God in prayer. But the meaning of the verb is you leave it with God. Do you see you cast it away from you onto him? Think of it. What has Jesus Christ commanded you? Christ himself has said, you don't do this. You do not worry. How does Paul reinforce that? He says, you know, your anxieties, what do you do with it? Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, you let your request be known to God. You cast these things away from you and you take it to the throne of grace. So we do need to unfold that. We do. But I wonder if there's something else and something more that we need to do just now. Because perhaps, as difficult as it is, perhaps right now we have to face our sin head on. I wonder, when you were a kid, whether you liked the dot-to-dot puzzles you used to get in magazines. Remember those? Join the dot puzzle. You like those? I do wonder if this morning you've been able to join the dots between verse 6 and verse 7. Now you think about what Peter has done here. He's held up on one hand, what? The virtue of humility. There it is. It's held up. Humility. And do you see what he's done? He has contrasted that humility with what? With, on the other hand, excessive worry. Humility contrasted with anxiety. Friends, do you see what that means? Do you see how these are connected? Do you see what it reveals? Listen, our anxiety is a symptom of our pride. Isn't that an awful thing to think about? Our excessive worry is a symptom of our pride. What do we see when we see ourselves overburdened with concerns. You know what we see? Yes, you might say we, we see a lack of faith in God of oh, 100%. It's a lack of trust in God's sovereignty, but it's more than that. What we see in our excessive concern is pride, it is ego. What we see is a pinning of our hopes for a solution to these things, pinning our hopes on ourselves to sort it out. You think about it. Man alive, the heart of man truly is dark. Our pride is intense. Do you not agree? Let's repent of this. Let's not doubt a God who Peter confirms is a God who cares for you, for me. And instead, let's look to the birds of the air. Let's look to the lilies of the field. Let's cast all of these worries upon this sovereign God and let's leave them there. So we take to God's throne in our suffering. Second thing, second, what did we say they were? We said they were lessons, didn't we? So a second lesson from scripture today is that in suffering, we tackle God's enemy. Okay, we tackle God's 
enemy. Now, uh, during the pandemic, over the last number of months, I wonder if you've noticed this. I think you probably have. It's been really interesting to see how language has been used uh, uh, frequently. So throughout 2020, our journalists, but our governing officials have very often spoken about this pandemic using wartime terminology. We've noticed that, have we? Wartime terminology. You and I, the country, we are in a war with COVID-19. And our nurses and our doctors, what are they? Frontline workers, aren't we? And we've been looking for a weakness in the coronavirus's defenses, haven't we? And what is this vaccine? It's a victory in the fight against this pandemic. Wartime, war terminology. Well, I think in a very real way, the same could be true of the church. You don't realize it. That the church today, we are at war. We are at war with an unseen enemy also. But it is not a virus. And it is not a pandemic. It's not COVID-19. We are at war with the devil himself. Now, you know, I'm sure if you've been in the church any length of time, you know that with the devil, there is the temptation towards extremes. Is that true? I think it is. On one hand, lots of Christians attribute everything that goes wrong to the work of the devil. You know, there's no personal accountability. There's rarely any sin. The devil made me do it. Okay, so on one side, you've got that. On the other side, is probably... a uh, an area of weakness in churches like ours, and that is to rarely talk about the devil, to rarely even think about uh, the evil one. Well, in this section of Scripture, for the one and only time in his letter, the only time in his letter, Peter mentions the evil one. So how does Peter come at this? What does he do when he's speaking about the evil one? Well, I actually think that those at LCPC who are from Africa or at least those who have been uh, on safari in Africa, you are at an advantage uh, to the rest of us, especially these heathen Scots in the congregation. Because do you notice the image that we've got here? Do you notice the metaphor that Peter uses? How is the devil spoken about? He is, he's a lion, a lion. Now, here's what I want to ask you to do. We'd ask you at this point in the sermon to go to the text and to read the text with me. So, First of all, consider what you're told in verse 8. So how does this lion behave? What does he do? Do you see? In verse 8, we're told that he prowls around. What an image it is, isn't it? And then he roars and he seeks to devour. Now, this idea of roaring, seeking to devour, this is sort of biblical language, especially in the minor prophets, for the idea of intimidation. Of seeking roaring lion, uh, a metaphor of seeking to strike fear into people's hearts. But read on, because how does the devil do that in verse 9? Do you see it in verse 9? Do you notice what Peter does? He parallels this roaring of the lion with the suffering or the persecution of the church. Like, does that not blow your mind? I think about the insight we're being given by God into the form of persecution or what is happening behind persecution. 
Like what is happening when we see the church opposed in this country and in other parts of the globe? What's happening? What do we see in that? In fact, what do we hear there? We hear the roar of the lion itself. What a thought. So behind every unbiblical law that is enacted in this country, behind every so-called progressive shibboleth of the day, behind all the persecution in far-off lands, behind even the ridicule that you face, the opposition you face from humble family and unbelieving friends, behind that stands the evil one roaring, seeking to intimidate, seeking to strike fear into people's hearts so that you might deny Christ Jesus and so be devoured. Isn't this serious? Is it something? Now, if we have been on safari, I guess I've never done it, but if we've been on safari, I'm imagining, I know the number one rule of safari club, you know, and that is don't turn your back on a big cat, okay? Probably first rule is don't get out of the Land Rover, but if you've done that, don't turn your back on a lion, Well, here, actually, Peter gives us a couple of other survival strategies for this fight we're in. He gives us two ways the people of God must fight off this lion attack. So for the first one, would you do this? Would you look at the beginning of verse 8 once again? Look at the beginning of verse 8. What did he say? He says, implores us, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. So two verbs, yes, taken together is the idea of you and I being vigilant, vigilant, vigilant. But listen to this. These are two verbs that when taken together, we find them in other parts of the New Testament in connection with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are they? Be sober-minded, be watchful. Now, it's a penny drop. And do you see what Peter is doing here? He's saying to the church, he's saying, such is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Since Christ's return is, is so near, you and I have got to be on our guard for the attack of the evil one. You and I, Christ is coming back soon and the, the lion proud out right now. We have to be awake to that. We have to be alert to that as Christians. And so I bring it into your room where you're Watching this just now, and I, I, I need to ask you, does that sound like you right now? Right now, in this season of your Christian experience, is there a watchfulness? Are you on your guard, knowing that Christ can come back at any time? Are you thinking about the tactics the devil uses of deceit, deception, and intimidation? Are you alert? Or... Is it more accurate to say that at this point, this season of your spiritual walk, there is a spiritual inattentiveness, a spiritual slumber. You letting your spiritual disciplines, your communion with your Savior and God, letting that slide. Wake up. Wake up. Be vigilant. There's a lion near you. But then for the second strategy, this battle strategy, look now at the the start of verse 9. Look at this, the start of verse 9. Here Peter commands us, do you notice? There's devils about this lion. He says, resist, 
resist the lion, resist the devil. Now, that idea there, maybe you're with me when I say it sounds really simple. But since we're dealing with a ferocious wild beast, I think there is a potentially fatal error that we can make with that command. See, what do you think about it? Let, let me ask you, really, what do you think? You hear the, 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 the resist something. What do you think? Like, I'll tell you what I think. I think it sounds incredibly passive. Doesn't it? Resist something. That means like, oh, well, I don't do it. Whatever. Like, in fact, if I, all I have to do, like, all I have to do is resist it. I don't have to do anything at all. Just stand back. Really, does it sound really passive? I need you to understand that actually the opposite is true. This idea of resisting the devil, Peter's lame before calling for action. He's calling for activity. And if you read on, you see precisely what that activity is. Do you see? Resist. How do we resist? Peter says, you stand firm in your faith. Listen to me. In a time like ours, where pressure is mounting on the church from outside. In a time where the prevailing winds of society are really beginning to pick up and blow against the church, we need to heed this. Friends, you and I need to linger long on what we know about our God. We need to be rooted in his nature and attributes. We need to study what God has done for us in the person of his Son, We need to resist and stand firm. And I ask you, really, when we read what Peter says about the devil, don't you think our lack of spiritual awareness is truly stark? You and I have been wrestling a lion, and we didn't even think about it. We didn't even realize it. We need to hold on to what we know is true. That if we are vigilant and we stand firm, by God's grace, what does he tell you? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we take to God's throne and we tackle God's enemy. And then the third and last lesson we hear here is we trust in God's promise. We trust in God's promise. Okay. See what you reckon about this. See what you think about it. I think it is it's one thing for me to tell you, throw away expression, and me to say, oh, in this section of scripture, God makes you a promise. That's one thing. I think it's something altogether different if I remind you that with this promise, the main body of this epistle comes to an end. Okay, so I want you to think about this. In fact, I want you to do this. If you've got a Bible there anywhere, pick it up and put it in your hands. Okay, even if it's in your phone or it's your iPad and it's sitting on your couch or your Bible. I want you to pick it up and have it in your hand. You've got the Bible there. Now, this is what I want to remind you. And, and it seems obvious, but wow, is it an amazing thing. Think about it. What you have in your hands right now, what you're looking at, is a letter. But this is a letter that in a very real sense has been written by God. Now, consider that. The maker of the heavens and the earth. 
has condescended, in a sense, to put pen to paper. Through, of course, the Holy Spirit. Yes, through his Holy Spirit, through Peter. But God has written a letter. Wait, wait. Then you consider that what you have in your hands is a letter that God has written in a very real sense to you. That he knew before he penned this, that you would have this in front of you, Christian friend, that God has written a letter to you. And then you begin to consider that the end of this letter concludes with, in God's wisdom, a promise. And he makes a personal promise, a personal promise to you. When you see it like that, do you not agree that that, even the positioning of the promise adds a certain weight and gravity and importance. So we're asking, aren't we, well, what's going on here? What is this? Well, I think first of all, we've got to know the foundation upon which this promise sits. So do this with me. Look at verse 10. How does he speak of God in verse 10? Do you notice it? Look at it. This, we can trust this promise because we know it comes from the God of all grace. Indeed, it's like being shot a million times with Nerf gun bullets, you know? Isn't it here, the sort of Nerf gun bullets of inclusio and bookends? Do you see? I mean, this is why we read the start of the book earlier on. Don't you see it? That just as Peter begun the letter, contrasting the brevity of our suffering with what lies ahead, how does he end the book here? We suffer, but we suffer only for a little while. And just as he begun the letter, don't you remember he spoke about our inheritance? It is unfading, it's imperishable. So he ends. And what does he speak about? He speaks about us enjoying an eternal, eternal glory. And just as he begun the letter focusing us on the power of God, how does he end this letter? Don't you see the inclusio? He speaks of the dominion of the Lord of all man alive. When you consider who God is, his grace, his power, when you consider what he's done, calling us into eternity to be with him, whatever this promise states, whatever it states, as a Christian, we know it's reliable and we know it's true. So what is its content? Have a look. This is what I'd ask you to do. I'd ask you to look at the end of verse 10. Now, do you see it? It's like building blocks. You've got four verbs that are stacked one on top of the other. Do you see them there, the four verbs? Like, these are verbs that are not supposed to be taken and analyzed individually. They're supposed to be seen together in a cumulative effect. Now, I'm going to ask you to read them with me. So this God of grace calls us to himself that from our time of suffering, what does he promise? He promises to, read them, to restore us, to confirm us, to strengthen us, to establish, to restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. Do you see what it is? This is a promise from God, a promise of preservation. Christian friend, if we truly are in Jesus Christ, the reality is, as you know all too well today, we're going to suffer disappointment and suffering and, and difficulty. And we are going to be attacked by a lion. But here God is promising never, ever, ever to let us go. 
that we will go through suffering, that he will take us through suffering. And if we remain vigilant and watchful, if we remain resist, standing firm in Christ Jesus, then God will strengthen us and he will take us home to be with him. And no wonder, therefore, Peter ends the body of this letter with doxology. Because given who God is by his grace and power, given the nature of the gospel, surely you agree God is worthy of all praise. Now we uh, begun, did we not, with the inconsistent logic of atheism. I want to end with how the good news of Jesus Christ is consistent and true Because there may be people watching right now who are not part of LCPC or who are, but who are not following Jesus Christ. They're not saved. They do not love Jesus. Who are not born again. And I know what you could be asking. You could be asking, this sounds amazing, but how can this be consistent? How can this be true? After all, does the Bible not say that God can only stand with a righteous one? Is it not true that we have to be righteous? And what have you already said in your sermon? You've said even our worry makes us unrighteous. Even when we are anxious, it renders us unsuitable to stand before God. How can this be true? How can you have this eternal future in Christ Jesus? Well, the answer to that question takes us to the place of greatest suffering of all to the cross at Calvary. I do wonder, if you're not a believer, I wonder if you truly understand what happened there at Golgotha. And I ask you, what did you sing? What did you sing? You say back to me, you say, I sang Psalm 22, but do you not understand what that is? Do you not? That is a Psalm that is from the perspective of the Son of God as he hung on the cross. Isn't that an amazing thought? A song giving the mind of Christ at Calvary. And I ask you, how did he describe the suffering he faced as he hung there? Listen to the words. Their mouths they opened wide on me, upon me gaped they. And there at the cross, the suffering, like to a lion, Ravening and roaring for his prey. You don't see it? How can we trust God? How can we know that our salvation is secure? Because Christ has won the victory. Christ has won the war. He has atoned for our sin. He has faced the wrath of God. But he has gone toe-to-toe with the evil one. He has gone head-to-head, tete-a-tete with the devil and Christ Jesus stands today risen victorious triumphant over all surely even if you begun watching this video of somebody who did not trust in Christ surely you begin to see the glory of the son of God surely you want to come to him to him to the man of sorrows to come to him for forgiveness cleansing, come to him for everlasting joy. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's close this video in prayer.
Gracious God, we worship you uh, as our God and as our Savior, as our Creator, as the sustainer of life. Lord God, we know that the Christian walk is a uphill struggle. We are so grateful to you that you are with us every step of the way that you lead us on. We know we are at war. But we are grateful that these are just skirmishes, that the outcome of the battle has been decided, that Christ stands victorious. O oh Lord, hear our praise as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.